Colossians chapter 2. Jason has prayed us in. The late Dr. Adrian Rogers, I can't wait to spend eternity with him, but he made a very profound statement about legalism. He said, the reason that God hates legalism is because legalism offers him the best of what he hates, the flesh. And that's legalism. It offers God the best of what the flesh can do. And God says, I hate that. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 29 that no flesh should glory in his presence. Despite that, though, the legalist is absolutely convinced, fully, that they can somehow please God in and through the performance of their flesh. No matter what the Bible says, somehow through my rules and my list, I'm going to please God. And you will too if you follow my list. And not only is God not pleased with their performance, he is as displeased with the heart behind it. Because it's the best of what he hates, and that is the flesh. The first ism of man that we looked at a few weeks ago here in Colossians chapter 2 was legalism. And the focus of that word is found in the root of the word legal, where we are concerned with, preoccupied with laws and rules and lists. The Gnostics were trying to enforce upon these Gentile believers at Colossae, they were trying to enforce them to observe days that were never given to Gentiles or given to the church. And so we're going to read on this morning and look at more of this heretical sophistication of the Gnostics as it unfolds for us or continues to unfold for us. In verse 18 of Colossians chapter 2, Paul said, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, Intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments, there's that word again, of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh." Now, Paul had already warned them about being beguiled in verse 4 with enticing words. But here in verse 18, he uses that word beguiled again. But now he's using it to show them that there is a price. There will be a consequence should they allow themselves to be beguiled. And what was that? Let no man beguile you of your reward. If you remember in chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul told us that the Father has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So at salvation, God in his marvelous grace allowed us, he qualified us to participate in the rewards that will be given out at the judgment seat of Christ. Praise the Lord. 
But notice, Paul's concern here was about them losing their reward, not their salvation. Do you see that? Here's where I'm going. Uh, For some believers, they are so preoccupied with losing their salvation, but if only they were as preoccupied with the judgment seat of Christ, they would yield so much more glory to God with their life. Paul was not concerned about their salvation because he knew they were already saved. Paul was concerned they would run in vain. Paul took the judgment seat of Christ very seriously, and I am concerned that we don't take it serious enough. We're so here and now in our focus, we're so temporal and so carnal in our focus that we think and live without eternity in mind. There is coming a day, as a matter of fact, we're closer to it right now than we were this time yesterday, But there is coming a day very soon where you and I are going to find ourselves standing before him at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for this life that he given us. And we should take that very seriously. Paul clearly did. You see it all through his writings, but Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labor in vain. Does that terrify you? Does it terrify you to live a vain life? Does it terrify you? Does it terrify you to find yourself standing before him at the judgment seat of Christ with nothing to show for the marvelous grace that he has bestowed upon your life? Does that not terrify you? Does that not make you shudder? 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Paul never wanted to waste time. It was not something he could waste. He had to redeem it. He goes on to explain what Satan was using to attempt to beguile them of their reward in verse 18. In a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. The phrase, in a voluntary humility, was translated as love to go in long clothing in Mark 12, 38. Look at it. And he said unto them in his doctrine, beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces. Jesus said that everything that the scribes and Pharisees did, they did to be seen of men. That was their motive. That that was their bottom line behind all that they did. It was all about the performance of the flesh outwardly. Look at me. Check me out. Look at how spiritual, how religious I am. So voluntary humility is false humility that is rooted in pride. Listen, anytime you find yourself preoccupied with your outward appearance, that's a very prideful position. Look at me. Look at how whatever I am. And we see the expression of what's going on here. We see the expression of this in asceticism, which is this very strict adherence to self-denial. And those who practice it believe that they are elevated to a higher spiritual plane than those who do not. Is that not Gnosticism (laughs) one-on-one? 
right? So because I do this and you don't, well, I'm on a different spiritual level than you. We play this same game today in Christianity, don't we, with, with phrases like doctorate. Doctor so-and-so, and the more accomplished you are, that means that, that you have ascended to some spiritual plane that those who have not attained those credentials, man, they can only look up and admire how great you are. Because after all, the smartest guy always wins, right? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> hey, here, here's something that will humble you. If, you. if you wrestle with being the smartest in the room, just remember, if you put the whole room together, you're not anymore. How about that? So if I think I'm the smartest guy amongst us today, as a matter of fact, forget about the whole room. If you just put Larry and Anita together, I've already lost. <laughs> Lori's like, well, you can just put me and we've already lost. She's right. Those who are given to this asceticism, they abstain from any worldly pleasure that they deem would be a distraction. And this is prevalent in movements like Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam. And on the surface, it looks very impressive, if not biblical. I mean, what's not to admire about strict self-denial? I mean, after a while, didn't Jesus say that if a man's going to come after me, he has to what? Deny himself. Okay, yeah, man, that, that, that sounds wonderful. And, and man, doesn't it sound really good to say that you're going to abstain from any worldly thing that would distract you from God? Well, yeah, that sounds great until... Until you realize that, oh, wait a minute. What you're actually saying, though, is by doing those things, that equates to righteousness. And that puts you on a higher plane than someone else, right? Now it falls apart. Completely. The second ism is asceticism. We saw legalism, and now we're talking about asceticism. And Paul gives us more data on this as we keep looking here in Colossians 2 and verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? In other words, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the dispensation of grace are not to live and govern their lives by man's religious laws and rules. You're not subject to those things. That's not the abundant life that Jesus Christ had in mind. You know, can I tell you, and again, I, I, I'm not the oldest guy in the room, but I have lived long enough to be able to, to qualify the statement. But in, in my years of living, I've been saved for 26 years now. You know, I have yet to meet. I have yet to meet a friendly and peaceable person who live their life, who govern their life according to a list of rules. I have yet to meet that person. The people that I have met who adhere to ordinances are typically people who are very, they're very uptight, they're very strict, they're not very friendly, they're not very kind, they're not gracious, they're extremely critical, very judgmental, I mean, life, as a matter of fact, I would say that their disposition is absolute, it's just miserable. Something is always wrong. Someone is always not measuring up. Someone's always failing them. I mean, it, it is, I've yet to meet that person 
who goes about life that way, and you're like, man, I can't wait to be around them. As a matter of fact, you tend to avoid them. Their life is all about what they do or what they don't do. I had a coworker once who was known like they, they were known by their list. They were known by it. I mean, everybody knew. Man, they, they, don't, they don't do birthdays. They don't do holidays. They don't, I mean, like, they don't do this. They don't do that. However, <laughs> whenever we had food days, people would bring really these tasty treats, right? We're having a food day for someone's birthday or we're having a food day for a holiday. Of course, they would never bring anything in. But you would absolutely see them making frequent trips to the food area to get food. Every year, the company would would put on a very lavish holiday party. It was spectacular. Well done, very, I mean... And every year, the company would give out very high-end gifts to every employee. It was wonderful. Of course, uh, they don't do holidays, they don't parties and things like that. You would never catch them there. But here's where you would catch them. You would catch them on the following Monday morning. You would catch them downstairs in HR, of course, to claim their high-end gift. (laughs) But they don't do holidays. See, over time, you just come to learn that legalism and hypocrisy are very close friends, aren't they? As a matter of fact, they're best friends. Where you find one, you always find the other. They're inseparable. If only you could see inside the closet of the legalist, I promise you, it is more scary and terrifying than the worst horror movie you've ever seen. If only you knew what was in the closet of the legalist, it'd make your head spin. Now, we said that what we see here in Colossians 2 is not new. Look at verse 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Does that sound familiar? Again, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, there's no new thing under the sun. And he was exactly right because Genesis 3, 3, what do we read? But of the fruit of the tree, which is... In the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Did God say the tree was not to be touched or handled? God did not say that. Couldn't eat of it. But that was Eve's doctrine, not God's. And that's exactly what Paul accused the Gnostics, the Gnostics of in verse 22. After the commandments and doctrines of men, asceticism is man's doctrine, not God's. This is man's doing. This is man's invention. And listen, whenever man creates new doctrine, new worship often comes with it. It's amazing how that works. Look at verse 23. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. We'll come back to that statement. But you see asceticism very clearly in verse 23. Look at it. Humility and neglecting of the body. But you also see something else in verse 23, don't you? And that is will worship. What is that? This is worship that is invented by man and is driven by man's own will. 
So if man is the final authority in worship, you know we most certainly have a problem, don't we? That is the last place that man wants to find himself where he is the final authority. He is the expert. He has the final say on this thing that means everything to God, worship. That can't be good. It's not. Will worship, you need to know, is extremely offensive to God and it is very dangerous. I do not recommend it on any level whatsoever. You absolutely do not want to place yourself between God and his worship and glory. Consider Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered his worship. Strange fire. Before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu took it upon themselves to override God's instructions and do what they thought was best in worship. And what did God do? He devoured them. We must be careful. So very careful. They departed from the truth that God had given them about worship. And how is it that we worship? The Lord tells us in John 4, 24 very clearly, does he not? God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, brothers and sisters, please hear me. We've got to be so careful that we do not limit or reduce worship down to just singing. Subconsciously, we do that all the time. Worship is just what we do here in a couple of minutes when we go into the main service and we take 15 minutes and we're going to worship God. That's not worship in its entirety. Singing is a method that allows us to express praise and worship to God, but you cannot define worship with that alone. As a matter of fact, the first mention of worship, as we know, in God's word is in Genesis 22, where Abraham is preparing to go offer his son Isaac, and he uses this word worship for the first time. Listen very carefully. I don't get the impression that Abraham was preparing to sing. I don't think there was a choir on top of that mountain ready to break out and worship. No, contextually, we understand that worship, true worship, is always connected to sacrifice. Again, we can express it through singing, but it is so much more than that. But even in singing, that expression must be genuine, and listen, it must be biblical. We don't get to just sing anything. We don't get to just write anything that we like. It must be in spirit and truth. It has to be based on God's word. It's not based on your musical preferences or mine. So please hear this. The goal in singing is not to feel good. 
The goal is to praise and worship God. Do you see that? So often people get wrapped up and caught up in themselves emotionally in this expression of worship through singing where they become the focus of it. But you and I are not the focus of worship. Our feelings are not the focus of worship. The focus of worship is praise and worship to God. That's the focus. Can you feel good? Yes. But that's not the focus or the bottom line. And if at any time singing is centered on how you feel, guess what you've done? You have now placed yourself at the center of this exercise called worship. And and listen, this is what people do. And it breaks my heart, but this is the truth because I know people. People do this here. They'll be in the sanctuary and their enthusiasm and their passion and their interest and focus during the singing fluctuates depending on the song selection. So, oh, oh, I really, oh, yes, yes, I love this song. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then another one comes up. (sighs) (laughs) Who is this about? Be careful. God does not play with his worship. Now, God forbid that I would be a legalist here, but I carefully, I've confessed this before. I am not the biggest fan of mainstream Christian music today. Uh, All styles of it. At times, I am confused about who is being sang to and what is being sang about. I mean, I've listened to songs, I'm thinking to myself, okay, that is definitely not truth. You cannot reconcile that biblically. That's not true. So I will not sing that. I've trained my kids the same thing. Listen, when you're singing, you pay attention to the lyrics. It's got to be in spirit and in truth. You can't worship God through a lie. Some of the lyrics can subtly, listen, some of the lyrics can subtly, listen very carefully, they can subtly push you and I to the center I've heard songs that go something like this. Uh, You considered me worthy to die for. What? I I was worthy? Me, I I was worthy. No. (laughs) No, I was unworthy. (laughs) Does that make sense? That's not true. Now, listen, if I'm riding in your car or I'm in your home and we're having a nice meal and you're cranking K-Love, we're good. I'm not going to criticize you, talk about you. Man, we're good. You be at peace. And I, my wife is just, because, hey, man, Lori has a passion for music. I appreciate that. She listens to whatever she listens to. I don't say anything. I, I just, we're, man, we're good. Again, I'm not trying to regulate any of that for anybody. I'm just saying the lyrics must be biblical and God-centered. That's it. Because, listen very carefully, music is a platform where we can easily become Nadab and Abihu. 
where God, I'm going to hijack this, and I'm going to make this what I want to make it. I'll never forget this, and we've got to be so careful, but I wrote a book some years ago written by Pastor Jim Cimbala, Brooklyn Tabernacle, Brooklyn, New York, and I'll never forget this line that in the book that he, that he wrote, and it really, boy, it gripped me. He said, you know, it's so hard to look at what's happening in Christian worship today where we're bringing in artists to Brooklyn, New York, right? And listen very carefully. Now, they, they, these, are, these are praise and worship groups. And, and here are their demands as they're coming to worship in the great Brooklyn Tabernacle. Uh, we want first-class seats on our flight to New York. And we want to have sushi waiting in our hotel room when we get there. And now these people are going to stand before God's people and tell them how to trust God. Be careful. This is what got Lucifer. He put himself at the center of worship and he put himself between him and God and you will lose every time. Okay. We keep going. Back to verse 18. They were also in jeopardy of being defrauded of their reward through worshiping of angels. So again, the Gnostics never denied the existence of Christ. They deemed him to be some type of an angelic being of some type of lore angelic tier. But here's something very interesting about asceticism. Asceticism can involve extreme fasting and sleep deprivation, which, listen, brings on hallucinations. Probably seen that. Hence, the worshiping of angels. Here's our third ism, mysticism. Mysticism. Mysticism centers on experiencing God through knowledge that transcends the natural world. Experience. And again, you'll see this manifested throughout many isms. Anybody hear about uh, existentialism? (laughs) Where the focus is on human experience? It's mysticism. Again, all the Gnosticism, I mean, the, the branches, they reach out very far to this day. Again, the isms of man just keep striving to be of higher knowledge than God's word itself. This is always the clue of a Gnostic. The word of God alone is never enough. The word of God alone is never the final authority. The Gnostic cannot resist what he or she thinks. The Gnostics have to weigh in. The Gnostics have to give their spin. It's unbelievable. But hallucinations, as we know, are things that only appear to be real within the human mind. Notice verse 18. Intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The Gnostics were speaking with surety about things they had not even seen. But they were speaking as if those things were real. Like, oh yeah, let let me tell you all about this. You haven't even seen it, Paul says. 
And they were speaking without reason, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, Paul said. Because, listen, true angels of God would never accept worship from man. This is why these were vain imaginations. They were vainly puffed up in their mind. They had not seen these things, nor were they correct. In Revelation 19, an angel is narrating the vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the Apostle John was so blown away by what he saw that he fell to the ground and, be, and tried to worship this angel. Look at Revelation 19.10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, John said. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I don't have time, but... But this does gives you insight into the identity of the angel of the Lord who we find accepting worship. So you take that with you. And it also gives you some insight into the deity of Christ. But we love experiences, don't we? We're all about them. Again, I, I know that I will spend eternity with some brothers and sisters who are charismatic and Praise the Lord about that, but my heart does ache for them even now because I know how much they love experiences. They love it. This is very critical. Simple, but critical. You have to get this. Truth trumps experience every single day, every single time. Truth trumps experience. Experiences are never the bottom line. Truth is always the bottom line. Truth always wins with God, not experiences. The Gnostics were touting a mystical experience that was not based on truth. And if some of us were to be honest today... We would have to confess that we're very mystical in how we roll. We're mystical. We arrive at conclusions and make decisions, big ones, based on mystical experiences. One of my dearest friends for many years, we met as freshmen in high school. This guy was like a twin brother to me, and me to him, inseparable. We'd be in school all day and then go home and talk on the phone for an hour. Inseparable. My guy. I was his guy. I'll never forget, he reached out to me, and he was so excited to share with me that he had gone to this prophecy conference. And he went forward to get his blessing. And this prophetess prophesied over him very favorably. And what she told him was, I mean, who wouldn't want to hear this? But what she told him with tears and great conviction and surety is, God has told me to tell you I see money in your future. Hmm? 
And we're on the phone talking about this, and the, the conversation took, I would say, a rather spirited turn. Because he wanted to tell me all about the experience, and I want to tell him all about truth. He didn't want to hear that. And he didn't hear it. He refused it. How Paul felt about the believers at Colossae being defrauded is how I felt about him in that moment. He moved forward from that conference, and I mean he made some big decisions. He purchased a massive home in a very fine neighborhood. But as time went on, and I would be talking to him on the phone because he was weary and dog-tired from working three jobs to try and stay in that house. As time continued, that house was foreclosed on. His marriage went down the drain. He lost his family and was sleeping on the couch of his daughter's and his daughter's apartment with her boyfriend. But this prophetess saw money in his future. He was never the same person after that encounter with that so-called prophetess. Listen, I'm not brilliant. You know that by now. But I tell you what, I'm not naive either. I haven't been doing this for five minutes. And there are some in MBT. You have a dream. You get a vision. You hear a song. You have some nostalgic moment. Some mystical experience. Something that touches you, stirs you emotionally, and then guess what you do? You run and you move forward and you make serious decisions based on those things. With you, experience trumps truth. Not truth trumps experience with you. The Christian life is not based on mystics. It's not mystical. It has to be biblical. And here's what gives me heartburn as a pastor is we have husbands and we have fathers who are leading families from a mystical place. They're making decisions based on how they feel. They're making decisions based on some crazy circumstance, something they saw on YouTube or something they stumbled across while they're sitting at the red light and all of a sudden this thing happened and oh my goodness, wow, I know what I'm to do now. They're not making decisions based on book, chapter, and verse. Listen, I'm walking with God. Listen. Everything that God has to say to you and me, brothers, he has said, I don't need some prophetess or some prophet or some mystical situation, encounter, circumstance to tell me anything. God has told me everything I need to know right here. And I make decisions based on this. Not this. Do you know what this says about this? 
if you knew. You absolutely would not factor this into your decisions. If there's one thing you cannot trust, I've learned hard, the hard way. I can't trust this. The isms of man are summed up in verses 19 and at the end of verse 23. Verse 19, and not holding the head, that's Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. The isms of man do not regard Christ as the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. We saw that in verse 3. All <laughs> the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in him. Listen, they're not mystical. They're not obscure. They're not vague. They're not circumstantial. They're inspired and preserved. And you have it. But the Gnostics say, no, that won't suffice. You need experiences. Oh, boy. And this is what is meant by and not holding the head. Gnostics don't take into account Colossians 2, verse 3. They, they, don't, they don't hold, they don't retain that. And in the end of verse 23, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. We got to get this. In other words, <laughs> you got to get this. The isms, Gnosticism and all that comes with that. Philosophers and all of their human wisdom and, and people celebrate it and worship it and think it's the greatest thing in the world. And all that, listen. Those things do nothing to bring the flesh into subjection. Nothing. It offers no help, no assistance whatsoever to the flesh. As a matter of fact, the opposite. You know what the isms of man do? The isms of man only provoke the gratification of the flesh. That's what they do. They only provoke you to be carnal and be more carnal. This is what he's getting at the end of verse 23. This is the, this is the conclusion of his rebuttal to Gnosticism and all of its promises. You lose. This is why he was saying, man, if you go down this road, you're going to be beguiled of your reward. Don't take the bait. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It's always clear. God, I do believe that you have spoken to us because your word was open. And I ask God that whatever we have heard, God, we won't let it fall to the ground, but that, Lord, we would hide it in our hearts and count it as true. 
that God, it would manifest itself in our decisions and our decisions will reflect that we're walking and making decisions based on your word, nothing else. In Jesus' name.